0: Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a vodcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to our channel, please consider subscribing to it and hit the bell icon so that you don't miss any updates. I am your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome a very, very senior and accomplished professional, Dr. Mukund Raja. Mukund, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Rajan is the Chairman of e Investment Advisors. He's the Chief Ethics Officer at the Tata Group. He's the Chair of Tata Global Sustainability Council. He's served on the board of several Tata companies. He's the Chair of Piki's Environment Committee. He was recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. And he's an author, and I'm always partial to authors, of a book called The Brand Custodian. So, Mukund, tell me. Let's talk about EQ Investment Advisors, which is a platform you set up in 2019 to catalyze environmental, social, and governance uh, t- subjects. How important is ESG, and how you know how, how relevant is it for the Indian corporate sector? So, oh,
1: I think it's uh, tremendously relevant. Um, in fact, when we set up EQ, the uh, sense was that there were multiple different drivers mm-hmm. of. Uh, uh, f- uh, push towards better EAC performance in the Indian subcontinent, and two in particular that I'll call out. One was the strong focus on good corporate governance. I think you've seen the very large numbers of uh, non-performing assets in the Indian banking system, which account for a significant part of the explanation of the economic slowdown in India. And a lot of that has been because of poor corporate governance. Large number of bankruptcy cases, again linked to poor corporate governance. So the G and ESG I think is very, very important. Mm-hmm. That was one big driver. Second big driver has been something we've also seen during the COVID period of the last year, much greater sensitivity to environmental challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think the one big challenge that India is going to face, the Indian economy is going to face corporate, India is going to face is the whole focus around climate change and global warming. India is today the third largest greenhouse gas producer in the world after China and the United States. And the Indian corporate sector, I think, has a huge responsibility to play its part in trying to address uh, some of the genesis of uh, global warming and climate change, in particular, reducing its carbon emissions. Mm. So we thought in 2019 that it was the right time to create an entity that would bring much greater attention to the broad subject of ESG in the Indian subcontinent.
0: Very interesting. So you know, you are uh, you know closely associated with the Tata Group, which I think is one of the forward looking groups. But I'd love to get your thoughts on how are uh, the environmental matters being looked at by a very large part of corporate India. Are people really aware?
1: I think awareness has uh, uh, been on a steadily increasing uh, trajectory over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the large corporates, and I was part of India's largest corporate house, the Tata's. Uh, I think the large corporates find it easier to understand many of these issues, Mm -hmm. partly because they also have exposure in other markets, uh, some of which have more forward-looking regulation, much better enforcement perhaps than you see in India. So the large corporates, I don't think really have a challenge about understanding these issues and even getting prepared to address their responsibilities. Mm. Where I see the big uh, lacuna, if you will, in India, is more in the mid market and the small and medium enterprises. Mm-hmm. They tend to form a big part of the value chain and the supply chain of the large corporates. But They haven't had the same kind of exposure, they don't have access uh, to the best kind of technologies. Uh, they don't know which doors to knock on when they're looking for answers and solutions. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the focus in the future, if you want to really address the issue in corporate India, has to be addressing the needs Of the small and medium enterprises. So there I would really say there is both a task of education and awareness building and offering solutions including finance, capital, technology, Uh, all of that becomes very
2: important. Mm.
0: But yet, you know, when I look at it uh, as someone who uh, is is an outsider, you know, I don't have any industry that is creating any challenges for the environment but for, for the last 25, 30 years, we've been talking about pollution of the rivers. And we're still talking about it. You know, we're talking of pollution of the env- of the air. We're still talking about it. What can really be done in India to uh, for the as you know, as far as the low-hanging fruit are concerned, for the mid-sized companies and the small size companies to take over to, to handle the issue of environment?
1: India, I think, isn't the biggest issue. Uh, Unfortunately, it's just better enforcement. Mm -hmm. If you look at the statutes, you look at legislation, uh, you pretty much have all the controls and the ability to monitor what is happening and being done to the environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, essentially a question of enforcement. Mm -hmm. That's the first issue. But then when you start digging deeper and understand why companies are not able to comply with the law of the land, you then start discovering these secondary issues. Around awareness in some cases, so people will be doing stuff unwittingly not realizing the impact it's creating. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they do realize the impact, but they don't have access to the right technology, or they don't have access to technology at the right price points. Capital is often not made available to them. The banking system is not well geared to understand technology risk and to support some of these smaller companies. So I think you have to find solutions across the spectrum. So the, the more you scratch the surface, the more problems start getting revealed. Right. But you, you know, I think we have the basic framework in place, and I think the good news. Uh, and as I said, COVID has sort of opened everyone's eyes right. in, in a sad way, but uh, it is true that it has made people much more aware of the importance of having a balance uh, in the way in which you address your economic growth while also taking care of the natural environment. So that's a big plus, and hopefully, that strengthens the cause going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. So you know, in a recent comment made by Bill Gates, he said that we only have 10 years left for, the, for climate change. Um, how are we doing in India?
1: Of, uh, we are at very, very early stages of, of uh, addressing this challenge. Uh, the problem is that whatever you do, and that's why Bill Gates uh, talks about the next 10 years, uh, is going to have a cascading effect over the next 70 years. Uh, And so there's a lot of global warming that's already built into the ecosystem based on carbon emissions from decades past and so you have very little time left to actually get to what they call net zero. In India, we haven't yet started the conversation net zero. Uh, Right now, we're talking about reducing uh, the carbon intensity of the economy Mm -hmm. but we are still uh, some distance away from even talking about getting to net zero. So, uh, I think we're in the very, very early stages right. of, of what we can do in this market. Uh, and it sometimes gets complicated by this uh, other issue of um, justice uh, around carbon emissions. Mm. Uh, is it fair to expect an economy on the growth trajectory like India to dramatically cut its carbon emissions at a time when it is not yet able to offer the sort of economic livelihoods mm. uh, and uh, the growth that the a large part of the population is still very poor expects. Mm-hmm. And should that responsibility fall on Indian shoulders or should be carried more by the developed countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we lose sight of the fact that look, whatever happens, India is going to be a victim. We have the largest coastline perhaps in this part of the world, hundreds of millions of people mm-hmm. living within a few, within a few yep. kilometers. A lot of that will be at risk because of sea level rise. Agriculture is going to be impacted, higher temperatures will make outdoor work almost impossible at, Certain periods of the year. Mm-hmm. So, we need to prepare ourselves. And therefore, it's in our own interest, uh, regardless of whether the rest of the world comes to our support or not, mm-hmm. for us to find answers in this economy on how we can actually reduce carbon emissions. So, I, I think it's going to be a challenge. We are at the very, very early stages of the debate on all of this. Very interesting.
0: So, let's talk about ESG for the financial markets. Why is uh, ESG crucial for financial markets?
1: I think there's been a lot of research uh, mm-hmm. that has demonstrated that companies that actually pay attention uh, to the broad spectrum of issues covered under, under E, S and G, mm-hmm. uh, tend to be the companies that outperform their peer set. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're looking ahead of the curve at issues that would really be posing significant mm-hmm. business challenges, issues that could be mm-hmm. at risks for them. Uh, so what you see is these are the companies, for instance, that have started reducing their cost by more aggressively looking at uh, the kind of inputs that go into their businesses. Mm. These are the companies that are ahead of the curve on addressing issues like packaging in uh, in the foods business, uh, reducing that plastic waste, um, doing the right things in order to actually in some ways make their businesses more efficient, mm. reduce their cost but because the risk is also reducing, these are typically the entities also that tend to get loans at cheaper rates, tend to get insurance coverage at lower premium, and tend to outperform their peers, because as regulation starts catching up Mm -hmm. with the risk, these are the companies that are ahead of the pack. So I think there's enough research has demonstrated that companies actually take these issues seriously, Mm -hmm. tend to outperform the market. In India itself, you actually have the MSCI uh, ESG leaders index, Mm -hmm. that has actually outperformed the broader MSCI uh, benchmark index, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just in recent years, it's outperformed since the time the industries were constructed Mm -hmm. in 2008. Mm -hmm. So the last one year, over the last three years, over the last five years, over the last 10 years, they have outperformed the broader group. So I think there's an understanding that companies that take these issues seriously and importantly as I mentioned earlier embedded in these issues is a strong focus on good corporate governance. Mm -hmm. These are the companies that tend to do better over time Attract a better quality of investor, Correct. have a much greater sense of sustainability and a sustainable future for themselves.
0: Fascinating. So, you know, I was reading an article when I was preparing for my conversation with you. And mm-hmm. I thought this was a little bit of a cynical article, but i will going to ask you in any case. You know, in the old days, if you remember, there were carbon credits.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: Indian companies were happily trading carbon credits and they would buy and sell and say, I've met my commitment. Do you think uh, you know the Indian corporate sector will find a way to start trading ESG credits and keep doing whatever they want to?
1: So one problem with ESG, um, which uh, everyone recognizes I think around the world, is um, it's very hard at the moment uh, to boil it down to one sort of parameter, one data point. Um, MSCI, for instance, use over 160 data points okay. to arrive at an ESG score. Okay. So unless you have a very comparable framework across markets with a very standardized set of uh, input mm-hmm. uh, data points, it's going to be mm-hmm. hard to boil it down in the way you could with carbon credits. Carbon credits are really one issue, right? Carbon emissions.
2: Correct.
1: ESG is such a wide set of issues: mm-hmm. from environment, social issues, diversity in the workforce, CEO pay, board composition.
2: Correct. Correct. It's going to be very mm-hmm. hard
1: to you know create some kind of uh, construct of the nature you're you're describing. Also, I think it will be very focused on individual markets. So I I do feel that actually in India it's going to be foreign investors mm. who will put a lot of the pressure on Indian companies to up their ESG game. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there will be this notion of trading across markets mm. on a subject as widely diffused as ESG per se.
0: Very interesting. So you know, uh, many years ago when I used to live in Singapore, I remember talking to. Uh, the former Prime Minister of Malaysia, Dr. Mahathir, and in 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 Brazil, he had made a comment that uh, you know the the Western world has used up all their forests, and now are asking us not to cut our forests, which is our wealth. Uh, my question to you, uh, Mukunda, is: Does an ambitious GDP growth target contradict strong PSG values? Not necessarily. Not
1: necessarily. In fact if you're in sync with some of the broader technology trends, you will actually see that uh, a lot of the focus, for instance, on climate issues, a lot of the focus on better ESG performance Correct. actually opens up significant new business opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I often give people the example of an industry I was very involved with in years mm-hmm. past, which is telecoms. Right. Uh, there is an opportunity, if you're sufficiently forward looking to leapfrog uh, a generation of development. So in India, think about the old fixed line telephony and india actually leapfrogged that today you have around maybe 25 million fixed line connections in india yeah. but you have close to a billion mobile connections Absolutely. so india just completely uh, leapfrogged over the fixed line evolution and moved straight to mobility
2: mm-hmm. you can
1: see the same thing happening in energy there's no reason you have to go through uh, the hard work of you know coal mining and putting up thermal power plants mm-hmm. if you can leapfrog directly to renewables Mm -hmm. and to solar power, wind power, as India has been doing. We have perhaps one of the most aggressive renewable rollout plans in this country over the next decade. The government wants to take it to 450 gigawatts by the end of this decade. Mm -hmm. So those are ways in which you can actually avoid some of the less uh, uh, promising sort of attributes of conventional development while still creating jobs and creating prosperity around you. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think there is also a need to look at consumption patterns, look at the way in which your GDP is constructed, measured, and the way you think you're making progress. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some of the conventional tools you use to judge whether as an economy you're progressing and growing, Mm -hmm. I think those also need to undergo some change. Uh, But if you can get some of those measures right, there are enough tools available to actually see broader progress in terms of healthcare in terms of livelihoods, uh, in terms of prosperity and the general sense of well-being and happiness uh, without having to go through ways in which you actually destroy or hurt the environment. Amazing.
0: So I've got one more question for you uh, related to the environment before I move to your book. Uh, you must be working with a lot of millennials and Gen Zs and they are the inheritors of, I mean I'm much older than you but you know, of the mess we have created and we are leaving behind. What is your impression of how the millennials and the Gen Z's are thinking about ESG? I
1: think they are, they give you a lot of hope. I think they are very sensitive to issues around justice, fair play, intergenerational equity and transfer, uh, the state of the environment. Uh, They have not grown up in the kind of scarcity economy that you and I have seen in India in the past. So they're seeing a world which is much more open to input. uh, They're probably the one generation that now has had the greatest and best access to information Mm -hmm. in human history. So they've seen the consequences of a lot of the mistakes made in the past. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of hope when you look at them. In Tata's, we uh, launched a volunteering program. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, initially, one was wondering whether this generation would take to volunteering, to doing social service, to working with nonprofits. And actually, the largest number of volunteers came from this this pool of uh, of millennials. And the satisfaction that it gave them to actually go out in the community, in a sense, give back to society was huge. Uh, We were able to trace and track a lot of that through surveys. Like Similarly, pro bono contributions, they were the ones who put their hands up first. So I have a great, great amount of confidence that they are seeing the world with very different lenses uh, than we used to. And I'm much more concerned about the well-being of, of the world, the community, uh, and the natural environment. Fascinating. Fascinating.
0: So let's now talk about your book, The Brand Custodian. Tell me about the book.
1: Well, it's really a book about my years with the Tata's. Um, I, I wanted to get the book out of the way before I forgot <laughs> a lot of the stories, anecdotes, the things that made you know, life's so interesting and exciting when I was working in the Tata's
2: Uh and I had
1: the privilege of really seeing a lot of the change both in the Tata Group, India's largest corporate house, but also more broadly across corporate India Mm -hmm. from a very important vantage point, which is the office of the chairman of the Tata Group. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had the privilege of working with Ratan Tata for 12 years, Mm -hmm. then with Cyrus Mistry for four and my last two years were under Chandra. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought I had a unique vantage point to observe the changes that are taking place. Uh, and I felt it was my obligation mm-hmm. to actually report on what, what I saw, what I learned. Uh, and as I said, to do it before, <laughs> I forgot all this uh, yeah. and moved on to my next
0: gig and a new set of interests. And, passions. and And when you say the brand custodian, you're talking about the Tata brand and what it stands well,
1: for. Okay. Well, I, I served as the first brand custodian of the Tata group. And given that it was a book about my time with the Tatas, I think the publishers felt that, that was a, a good sort of title. Uh, in fact, they um, uh, uh, didn't accept a title I proposed, right. which was a play on words, which was "Tata to All That." <laughs> um, so the brand question was really about my my journey. Okay. But you're quite right because I make the point in the book that the reason Tatas have become such a large very well respected corporate house in Mm -hmm. India, uh, the most trusted corporate brand in India, is because so many Tata employees at an individual level have acquitted themselves as great brand ambassadors to the group. And ultimately actually everybody in an organization, uh, if you want the organization to be truly successful, has to believe that they are in part owners of the business and really represent the brand in the way they conduct themselves. So Every employee at one level is a brand custodian. So, in that sense, also, it sort of uh, fitted the fact that this is a book about as much about Tata history as it was about my time with the
0: Tatas. Amazing. I mean, you know, I have seen over the last four decades how the Tatas have evolved their brand as an outsider from Tisco, Telco, Tata Salt to the Tata Group. I mean, you know. But maybe I'm going to ask you for another conversation on just your book and what goes into building a successful brand. (laughs) But uh, uh, let's now move to the last segment of our conversation. There's some questions for you personally. My first question is that, you know, after such an amazing journey that you've had, and there's so many more things coming up, I'm sure. What would you say are three key milestones in your life or your career?
1: So if I I look back, I think... uh... There have been a lot of defining moments, some of them linked to each other, but the ones I'd call out, the first is probably uh, getting the Rhodes Scholarship uh, to study at Oxford. Yeah. Because it meant that from being an engineer at IIT, I went to Oxford and read social sciences, mm-hmm. uh, in particular in political science mm-hmm. and master's and doctorate and that opened my eyes to a completely new domain. Uh, And my interest in the environment, which you spent some time talking about, was actually generated Mm. uh, in the course of my study at Oxford. Uh, I wrote probably the first book on Indian government policy on climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, it was set in the context of environmental politics. Uh, The second was linked to my years in the Tatas in the middle period. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, Soon after I I left Ratan Tata's office, uh, when I became a managing director of one of our telecom companies, a listed company. And it was my first experience leading a large number of people and being responsible for a listed enterprise uh, and its shareholders. We at that time were the fourth largest startup company in terms of shareholding base. And uh, understanding you know, how that whole uh, game works, uh, the responsibilities you have to multiple stakeholders, being in the public eye, interacting with the media. And a number of new initiatives in the telecom space, Mm -hmm. Uh, I often joke with people that those are probably the last best years of Indian telecoms (laughs) before the rug got pulled from under our feet thereafter. And the third milestone, I'd say, was probably my appointment as brand custodian, Mm. uh, which opened my eyes again to a completely new field for me, which was brand management, corporate social responsibility, and the broader thematic around ESG, which is Mm -hmm. usually led to what we're trying to do at EQ. So those would be, I think, three of the highlights that I would call out. But as I said, often linked to each other, and sometimes it takes you many years, but then you suddenly see the way in which the dots connected over time. I wouldn't be so interested in climate change today if I hadn't done a PhD in, in the subject, you know, 25 years back. Yeah. Yeah. And if Tata's hadn't given me some exposure yeah. to how the corporate world is dealing with it, so often connected with each other.
0: Fascinating. So, I have time for two or three more questions. My next question to you is As you look back at life with so many things that you have done and from where you stand today, what does success mean to you? You know, there was a time when I was
1: younger when it was all about, you know, how many destinies can you influence? (laughs) Over time, as you mature and you become uh, a bit more seasoned with, kind of impact you can have. Mm -hmm. You realize that even, you know, helping one individual uh, having a beneficial impact on even one life Mm -hmm. is itself very meaningful. Uh, Whenever CEO uh, of the telecom company used to tell a lot of my colleagues and people down the line of the workforce that each one of us actually at one level is already a CEO. We are managing our own lives for sure but we often have a very salutary impact on the lives of a lot of people close to us, including our own families. Mm-hmm. So each one of us, in a manner of speaking, is already a leader, is already a CEO. Correct. Treasure that and try and see that you're the best that you can be in that role. Mm-hmm. So I think ultimately it's, it's about responsibly wielding whatever influence you have, and that influence varies at different points of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It can be channelized through you know, books and articles. People like you and me might write. It can be channelized through the conversation we are having. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be the personal impact you have on near and dear people who are close to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so I, I no longer have the sort of uh, young ambition one had, of, okay. you know, being uh, quote unquote great in some, you know, uh, some sort of exclusive fashion of leading a political party or uh, becoming chairman of a corporate house or something like that. You realize that you can have influence that goes far beyond uh, if you do things well, if you do it with responsibility and if your message gets out at the right time for other people to have an influence on their lives. Fantastic. And you know even one life that you change I think is very very useful and important.
0: Fantastic, Fantastic. and I got my last question now for you and this is a question on failure. Mm-hmm. I've often said uh, that Indians Indian parents or South Asian parents don't teach children, it's okay to fail. We're always told first in class, head of the line, etc. And that manifests itself in our behavior. pattern. Then I'm a parent, and I'm guilty of the same. Yet we fail and learn. My question to you is, what have been some of your learnings from some of your mistakes?
1: I've made plenty of mistakes and I was, uh, when I was growing up, I was not necessarily the best student in class. In my book, I mentioned the fact that my mom would say, there's no problem. You can fail as much as you want. You know, there are always a few uh, buffaloes around that you can tend to (laughs) as you become a young adult. So don't worry, life will take care of you. Um, No, I I, I think that you you discover yourself as an individual um, through failure. I've uh, not met quite honestly, a single successful person who's not had right. sometimes very deep failures in their lives mm. before they, they became very successful. Or indeed, after they became successful, uh, have also had you know, huge issues. Some of the people I worked with that I
2: mentioned, mm. at the
1: top of the Tata group, mm. you've seen in recent years, the kind of corporate governance battles that took place at Tata's, uh, the Cyrus of Smith and Tata falling out and so on. So failure is there in everyone's life. It's a question of how you deal with it and what you learn from it. In my own case, I felt that perhaps there were many situations where I was a little impatient early on in life, impatient for results, impatient to accept you know, challenge uh, and perhaps didn't deal with many situations uh, as I ought to have. As you grow older and a bit wiser, you tend to think, take things much more in your stride oh, and you can deal with failure more easily. And then you're not so worried about failure because I understand it's got to come as part of the game. What you're looking for is uh, what you can meaningfully build on and, and get out of that and how to actually advance any agenda you're passionate about.
0: What a great answer. Dr. Rajan, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to speak to you. I mean, I think I have learned so many new things from you today. I mean, you know, I'm grateful for you being so candid and giving such amazing responses. Thank you again and good luck. Thank you
1: so much, Ashutosh. Very kind of you. you. Real pleasure and good luck with the program. All the Thank,
0: way you so much. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You, videocast and podcast. A platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.com